and namaste to all of you. We are ready to continue tonight with our explanations of the yogic principles and esoteric metaphysical aspects contained in the teachings of Krishna as delivered in the famous Bhagavad Gita. We have reached with our analysis of this fundamental spiritual text to the chapter number four, which is called the Yoga of Knowledge. In this chapter, Krishna has explained lots of things, not only about knowledge as such. He is going to come back to the subject of knowledge in a few strophes, in a few verses. Here, Krishna has presented a lot of things about the spiritual action, about the principles of karma yoga. Actually, karma yoga is the silver thread running through the whole of the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is about karma yoga, mainly, and all the other things are just collateral teachings which integrate karma yoga in the wider context of the Indian spirituality. And in the chapter number four, Krishna is still arguing, because that's what he does. He argues with Arjuna. He tries to convince Arjuna. The context of the Bhagavad Gita is that Arjuna is in the terrible situation of doing a sort of a jihad, a sort of a holy war. And he is against the idea and Krishna, paradoxically, who represents God, who is the God-man, the Avatara, the divine incarnation, Krishna actually, paradoxically, favors a tough course of action. And the whole of Bhagavad Gita is used by Krishna to demonstrate to Arjuna what spiritual action really means, how to act when you are spiritual, what is action from the standpoint of a yogi. And he uses all sorts of approaches. In the chapter number four, he tries to give a lot of knowledge. And we are now around the strophe number 27 when we stopped last time. Krishna is in the middle of a very beautiful argument because Krishna is, for the second time in the analysis of this spiritual text, Krishna is explaining the principles of sacrifice. There is no time here to start explaining the whole thing from the beginning. Remember that the sacrifice in the meaning of Krishna and of Indian spirituality and of metaphysics and yoga in general, represents the basic spiritual activity of every spiritual person. The word sacrifice is very partial in English language, while in Sanskrit we have it under the name of yagya and others. Uh, not yagya is a typical one used, but it's not the only one. Agnihotra and many others are used. The point being that when you say sacrifice in English, it makes you think about maybe human sacrifices, animal sacrifices, or it makes you think about sacrifice like I have to sacrifice myself, a la Jesus, for the good of the mankind. And all these meanings of the word sacrifice, while they are embedded in a bigger meaning, they are actually not exactly what Krishna refers to. 
So remember, for those of you who never heard the commentary on this before, that the word sacrifice simply means that the physical world has to return some energy back to the spiritual world. The Muladhara Chakra has to return something back to the crown chakra. The physical plane has to dematerialize some of its matter and sublime it into energy and send it back to the Creator just to close the circle of the creation because the cosmic energy is pouring from on high and creating the seven planes of the universe down to the earth. And then if the process is not closed, if the circle is not closed, then we suffer an interruption of a cosmic cycle. And the perfect analogy which you always should have in mind is comparing sacrifice with the process of vaporization and circulation of water in the nature. If only rain pours on earth, but the oceans and the lakes do not vaporize back into clouds, then after a short while the rains will stop and will go into total drought because the rains are fed by the vaporization of further water from the oceans, lakes, rivers and other sources of water. In the same way, the grace is pouring on the human being, but the human being must give something back. It's not because God needs you to give something back. It's not because the Buddha nature, the spiritual reality, the cosmic consciousness actually needs something. But as long as we live in a world which is manifested, this world has some laws, such as the law of gravitation, such as the laws which make electricity function, and all sorts of other laws which in the normal context are immutable. You cannot change the law of gravitation except by violating the laws of nature. And therefore, it's not because many egoistic people think that the sacrifice is a sort of a ridiculous idea in which a human being is obliged to give something to God. And then God is like a tax collector. God is like a severe person who demands a tribute. The cosmic consciousness does not have the emotion of demanding anything, but the laws of nature and implicitly the laws of the human body, the laws of the bioenergy, the laws of the human mind, they are the ones which make it absolutely necessary. So sacrifice is not something which God requires from you and I. Sacrifice is a necessity. It is a must in the building of this universe, and it is something which helps us. The cosmic consciousness... Either the circulation of energy goes on or it stops. The cosmic consciousness is beyond space, beyond time, beyond relativity, and as such will not be afflicted or affected by anything which happens in the material world. But we, on the other hand, if the water stops circulating, we suffer from drought and thus the problem is down here. And that is why, all in all, the sacrifice means the necessity for the human being to offer 
something. And that most typical sacrifice in India, in the Indian Vedic culture, was of course Yagya, which is the fire sacrifice, which you can still see today, performed in pujas and ceremonies by the Brahmins of India, in which one of the main mechanisms of Yagya is with mantras and with consecration, throwing various items into the fire. And the fire burns them into nothingness, dematerializes them, and thus the idea is that the energy of that butter or sesame seeds or whatever has been thrown into the fire goes to the gods, is consecrated to something which or to someone who is lower or higher depending on the circumstances about which we are talking. I already have explained extensively that this principle addresses to magic as well, but in the context of Krishna and Bhagavad Gita, it goes way above magic, witchcraft and things like this, shamanism, animism and things like this, because Krishna is suggesting uh, the application of this principle into pure spirituality, into the communication of the human being with the divine. And Krishna, after explaining that the sacrifice is so necessary, it is a vital thing, there is no spirituality without sacrifice, like the Christian mass, the Indian puja, whatever other processes in ritual religious spirituality or in practical esoteric personal spirituality, still Everything is about sacrifice. The rising of Kundalini for a yogi, it's a sacrifice because Kundalini, like a fire, rises through your chakras all the way to the crown. And the goddess Kundalini, which was asleep in Muladhara, goes into sexual union with Shiva in the crown chakra, Shiva, the cosmic consciousness. That's a sacrifice. It's like a fire ceremony without using fire. The fire are your own chakras and your own energies. Your own kundalini is the fire and the sublimation. So the use of the fire in the Vedic rituals, it's a prop. It's just an external symbol for householders and people who do not practice spirituality, so that symbolically they can also do a sort of a simplified, diluted form of sacrifice. But of course, the sacrifice, for example, the sacrifice according to the Christian mystics is to offer your soul to God. Your soul, which is located in the area of the chest, the Jivatman, is rising through prayer to the level of Paramatman, the Supreme Soul, and thus prayer itself is like a fire ceremony, only it doesn't need any external prop, it just needs your sincerity, it just needs your surrender, it just needs your devotion. So prayer is a sacrifice, because, and what do you sacrifice? You sacrifice the most valuable thing that you actually have, your soul. You offer your soul back to God where it came from exactly as the oceans of the world offer the water back to the clouds where it came from to start with. And thus it's the same principle. 
but as you can see, it can be very spiritual, very metaphysical. Thus, sacrifice means many, many things. And then Krishna starts with an example of how do some people do sacrifice. Of course, even Krishna will not describe everything which is done in the wide world. Because Krishna himself in a physical world, in terms of his brain and speech, is limited by his knowledge in the physical world. So Krishna is unable to describe how do the South American shamans do sacrifice. Because he never heard about it living in India 4,000 years ago. And he did not practice crystal ball divination to try to read in Akasha how other people were doing sacrifice. He borders himself to describe to Arjuna how people in India, in the Indian aerial, do sacrifice. But there are people from Persia or from whatever other part of the world which may have discovered other very innovative ways in subliming the energy and offering the energy. Krishna, therefore, is very inspiring from an Indian standpoint, but even Krishna does not cover the whole gamut, the whole range of what the human creativity has discovered along centuries, how to perform sacrifice. Nevertheless, the uh, examples which Krishna gave, and I already commented three such strophes in which Krishna says some yogis perform sacrifice like this, some people perform sacrifice like that. That was in our previous satsang, in our previous lecture discourse. And now I'm just continuing with that list because Krishna continues for a few more shlokas. These shlokas are meant like to open your mind. It's food for the thoughts. It's like inspiration. Oh, so that's also a way in which one could do the offering, the sacrifice, um, as it is called. And thus, it gives you more and more inspiration to understand spirituality in a wider context. The last shloka, the last strophe which we read, the 27 said, Others offer all the activities of the senses and of the life breath in the fire of yoga, which is self-control kindled by enlightenment. And I explained already what does it mean to offer the senses, the jnanendriyas, the karmendriyas, the energy specific to them, what is to offer it, to sublime it and how to control the life breaths. And it is very interesting that his definition being, in the end, offering it in the fire of yoga, which is self-control kindled by enlightenment. If yoga would be described only as self-control, then yoga would be a very manipuristic science based just on tapas. The whole thing is to control yourself. But self-control can become abusive, exceeding, unwise, ridiculous, self-destructive, and many other things, as we explain in our lecture on tapasya, in the very first level of our yoga teaching here. And that's why it is very inspiring that Krishna himself concludes by saying in the fire of yoga, yoga which is... Self-control, like learning to control your body, energy, mind, emotions. Self-control kindled by enlightenment, 
like sometimes you don't need to apply it abusively, then you simply become a control freak and you just are completely fanatic with self-controlling yourself. But sometimes that becomes tyranny and suppression and choking of the manifestations of your prana, of your soul. That's why, remember, it's self-control kindled by enlightenment, like there is wisdom to it. An enlightened being knows now there should be self-control. Now, on the contrary, you should just let go and blow off the steam because now it's too much if you try to do self-control. That's why the enlightenment is part of it. Yoga is a very enlightened science. It's not just that some people have learned to flex the muscle of their willpower and at all cost and at all time should exert things of just controlling their willpower. And then he continues, some likewise perform yagya by means of material possessions, by austerity and by the practice of yoga, while other aspirants of rigid vows of lots of like monastic vows, for example, offer as yagya their scriptural learning and knowledge. A lot of ideas, at least five different ideas of how further five ideas added to what he said until now, of forms of sacrifice. How do some people do sacrifice? Says some likewise perform yagya by means of material possessions, which means... Christian monks, when they are taking the vows, they follow the injunction of Jesus, sell everything you own and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Therefore, Christian monks and nuns, they are not allowed as well as Buddhists, just to show you that it's not a unique idea. They are not allowed to own anything. Even the clothes which you have, if you are a monk or a nun, they belong to the monastery, not to you. They are leased to you. They are loaned to you for your spiritual life. You have nothing. You don't have the right to have even a begging bowl. Nothing is yours. This is a form of sacrifice by material possessions. Like I give all the material possessions which I have. Some people are not as radical as that. And we explain that situation to you in our lecture on Aparigraha, the non-possessiveness in the first level of yoga teaching. Because for some people, they realize that this is very much a matter of mental attitude. For example, there are people who make regular donations in Christianity, in Buddhism. In India, you find people who simply donate money. No, and some, maybe somebody, for example, makes his money by selling booze, importing and exporting alcohol, wine, whiskey, whatever. Selling alcoholic beverages in some cultures, in some spiritualities, is plainly the devil. And for some people to make your wealth and living by selling alcohol, which makes other people get drunk, stab each other with knives, commit all sorts of immoralities and go in all the wrong places, it's like blood money. And therefore, if somebody has got a million dollars by selling booze, 
they can very well think I should give one-tenth of what I made to God, to the Buddhist monks, to a monastery. And in this way, I can whitewash myself. I can pay my sins by giving something. That's the famous principle of tithing, of giving a tenth of your income to the divine, which was applied scrupulously and religiously in the old days. And even today, there are spiritual people and even yoga teachers who practice tithing. And therefore, some people practice yagya. Yagya means sacrifice, fire ceremony, by the meaning of material possessions. Like I take one-tenth of my money and throw them into the fire to give them to God. Only, I don't literally throw them into the fire. I am donating them to the construction of a Buddhist monastery, to an ashram of yoga, to some monks from a Christian monastery. If you don't really like it directly religious, then there are all sorts of charities which are organized by some religions in which orphan children are being raised, in which hungry people in Africa or some other places are being fed and so on. And some people prefer to go that way. Actually, of course, it is more spiritual to go directly to the spiritual thing. For example, in Tibet, the idea or the situation in the medieval times when Tibet was a very spiritual land was that there were, according to some statistics, between 25 to 50 percent of the Tibetan population lived in monasteries. 50% is inconceivable. It means every other person was a monk or a nun. Those people never toiled, never plowed, never did agriculture. So from a strictly economical standpoint, if you'll ask Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and Comrade Lenin about this, those people were parasites. They were not producing any food and yet they were eating, weren't they? Because they were not living on air, most of them. And that's why those people were eating. But who was eating? The poor Tibetan farmer. He was toiling the soil and producing cereals and tsampa and whatever they were producing. And therefore it means that the Tibetan farmers were willingly, apparently giving an important part, not a small part, an important part of their produce to the monasteries. And the monasteries could feed thousands of monks. The monasteries did not have, like they were not doing agriculture. And that is why it's important to remember, because the idea of the Tibetans, who are very devout people, were... You are more lucky than me and you somehow caught this train and you learn meditation and you learn yoga and you learn tantra, whatever you are doing there. And I have kind of lost the opportunity. Somehow my life took me into becoming a householder, not doing so much spirituality. And therefore, perhaps I, I shall not reach nirvana in this lifetime. You are sitting in a monastery or in a cave or in a hermitage and you are meditating, doing yoga, praying, whatever your guru has taught you to do 
and you are struggling to find spiritual emancipation. So what do I do? Because I cannot pray so much. I cannot meditate. I, can, I don't know how to do yoga. I can at least give you food. So we make a symbiosis. I do agriculture. You do meditation. I do agriculture for you. Please, you also, when you meditate, remember me. Pray for me also, because I am. we are a symbiosis. It's the lame and the blind. The blind walks, and the lame sits on his shoulders, and scopes, and does the viewing, sees ahead. There is a symbiosis in the human society. So in many societies which are spiritual, like in India with the sadhus, in Tibet with the monks, in Thailand with the monks, in medieval Christianity with the monks and nuns, people are willingly donating a part of their money to spiritual people for gaining merit. In, in Thailand, this is called making merit. Like if you donate a thousand baht to the construction of the temple nearby, you will get like good karma, merit, you will kind of, yes, even with the money. Some people will say, what has money got to do with it? But without money, you cannot imagine the modern society. Even people who despise the money, like Christian mystics and others, they still live in monasteries which have been built with money. So as much as they despise it, still the money makes things run in a society based on production and values like the modern society, like the human society has been in the last few thousand years. And that's why here it is again. Some people, says Krishna, likewise perform yagya, sacrifice to God by means of material possessions. You can't meditate. You can't sublime the energy and send it to Sahasrara. You can't do prayer. Then at least give some money for people who can. And the people who can will carry a little bit of your cross on their shoulders. You feed them, then you create merit. Because they eat the food which is produced by the sweat of your brow. And thus... In the society, we constantly have a symbiosis. Some people make yagya by material possessions. Like they say, I don't have my third eye open and I don't have much possibility to meditate. But I am extremely rich and I could donate a million dollars for hungry children or for building an ashram, or for building a temple, or for supporting people who want to do spirituality. Like I create a foundation in which I am sponsoring every young man or woman who wants to dedicate three years of their life to non-stop spiritual study, so that they don't have to go working in shell oil or delivering pizzas by night to sponsor themselves to do yoga. A spiritual, a person with money and with spiritual orientation can sponsor such people and say, I'm happy for you. I cannot stop from my life and go into a monastery and do vipassana, but I praise you because you are having the aspiration and somehow you caught this train and you are doing. I am proud for you and here is from me a little donation to support you in this worthy endeavor. 
because you are not going you are not going to a pub to get drunk you are not shooting drugs you are not doing perversions and immoralities you are one of the rare human beings who tries still in a dark age like kali yuga you are one of the human beings who tries to reach a greater good who tries to reach spirituality which is so rare nowadays in this age of skepticism and of so many inferior materialistic tendencies and thus yes this is a sacrifice it's a form of sacrifice like the romans had a proverb which we quote for you to explain to you why there are so many forms of yoga the romans have a proverb which says the bull fights with its horns and the eagle fights with its talons you cannot ask a bull to fight with the talons because it has got no talons you cannot f- ask a bull or an eagle to fight with its horns because the eagle has no horns which means every human being has a talent and a power some people have intelligence and not too much heart and some people have a lot of heart and not so much intelligence then why would i ask the heartful person to do genius intellectual efforts when his strong side is somewhere else why would i ask the brilliantly intelligent person to live constantly in the heart when their strength is somewhere else and therefore everybody has to find a spirituality which fits with their natural gifts because that's where you are most gifted and that's where you get the fastest results some people feel like sitting and doing meditation some people literally produce every day so much money that they can't spend them whatever they do there are people who make more than a million dollars per day in this world even if they buy themselves an airplane every month they cannot spend that amount of money and therefore there are people who simply have a talent in producing money if they would understand spirituality they would put some of their money in spirituality and thus give them to god and thus they would close the circle the bull fights with the horns the eagle with the talons if your power is to meditate meditate if your power is to love love if your power is to sponsor sponsor everybody can be integrated in spirituality one way or another using their natural power you don't need to prostitute yourself and to become something else than you are you just need to integrate yourself spiritually and then he says other people practice sacrifice by austerity this is taught in the lecture on tapas in the first level of yoga tapas tapasya for some people is their spiritual practice people say i shall not eat sugar for one month i shall wake up 2 hours earlier every morning i shall not waste my sexual energy i shall not do this or i shall not do that and that they consider a sacrifice they say that's my sacrifice to god i am giving to god the fact that i shall fast for one week one week i'm fasting and i'm offering what do you offer to god the act of tapasya the austerity as it is called here this is practiced by some people as sacrifice does it work automatically no absolutely not don't think that everybody who makes acts of will power is automatically sacrificing to god there is one ingredient missing 
And that ingredient is, of course, the consecration, as we teach in the Karma Yoga lectures. If you want to make a tapas, and you want that tapas to be your sacrifice, then you have to consecrate it from the beginning and say, this tapas which now I'm going to do, I give it to God, this is my sacrifice, this is what I'm offering. Then it becomes a sacrifice. If not, it becomes a tapasya simply, and it is an act of willpower, of self-discipline. It can still be very useful for your life, but it is not a sacrifice unless you call it a sacrifice, unless you offer it as a sacrifice. The same with the money. You can give money without offering them as a sacrifice, then it's not a sacrifice. People forget, don't realize that the mind is very important and how you put the mind matters. Thus, some people give some money to some hungry children in Africa to be fed. That's good, but that's not a sacrifice to God. That produces good karma. You do a good deed, the result of that good deed is that you get good karma. But to get good karma is not the same thing as offering something to God. These are two completely different actions. You can feed children in Africa and get good karma, or you can feed children in Africa and make this your spiritual practice. Offer it, like in karma yoga, to God. Therefore, it's very important to understand the difference because many people are selfish and they say, oh, I want to do something nice because that something nice will buy me further happiness. As Jesus says, those are the merchants of God. They have learned the laws of karma and they know if you do good, then you are going to find good. But that has no spiritual meaning. People think that, oh, religion is about doing good. No. That's a very superficial and materialistic understanding of religion. Religion is about offering yourself to the divine consciousness, uniting in a mystical way, unio mystica, joining this ocean of cosmic consciousness from where we all proceed. That's sacrifice and that's spirituality. Oh, but wouldn't it be nice if we had more charitable people who did good deeds? Yes. That is also good, but let's not mix up a good thing with the best thing. There are things which are good, and there are things which are exceptionally good. The exceptionally good ones are what is called sacrifice, offering, subliming, and austerity itself can be turned into that, while you can perform austerity to get some paranormal powers. The Indian Shastras are full of stories with a powerful demon who did tapas for a thousand years and got the power that he could not be killed, he could not be wounded, he could not, and then he became a total tyrant and was tyrannizing the universe. Then there's nothing spiritual in doing tapas. You can do tapas just to acquire paranormal abilities and then misuse them to become tyrannical and use tyrannical imposition on others. Some perform yagya by the practice of yoga. Even the practice of yoga is a sacrifice. Many people say, you guys, when you do yoga, especially in Agama, 
especially when you do two months, three months, and you see how the yoga sessions get deeper, stronger, the energy becomes more aware and everything. You guys, like many people, compare a yoga session with a ritual. It's like your yoga practice is like a rite. It's like there are rites, rituals. In a certain way, it's true, although it's not intended to be that way. We do not teach yoga as a ritual. But yoga itself is like a mass. It's like the Christian mass. That's the way the yogis celebrate the mass. By standing on their head. By doing their pranayama. By doing their laya yoga. This is your personal religion. You don't need a ritual religion with priests and garments and parifernalia and ingredients and rules and idiosyncrasies and things. You have the best religion in the world with a thing like yoga or other similar things because the religion is in you. You are the temple, you are the priest, you are the god and you are the beneficiary of it as well. This is the most natural religious thing. The yoga practice, you can do yoga practice for healing your knee. You can do yoga practice to get power. And you can do yoga practice for God. You can simply say, today I do yoga for Shiva, for the cosmic consciousness. I don't want, I have nothing, I'm lacking nothing. I feel good, I'm healthy. I am psychologically okay. I don't need any reward. I do yoga because I love myself and I love God. And that's my way of expressing it. Then even the yoga practice can be consecrated. Like there are many people who do yoga in this world. And because they relegated yoga to the level of gymnastics, they do yoga for fitness. They do yoga for themselves. They do yoga as a food for their ego. But there are people who do yoga spiritually. They do yoga for the greater good, for God. Thus, you see some, like in our school, teachers teach. We don't do that in the first level and beginning levels of yoga practice because people are too much in the beginning and they haven't audited the lecture on karma yoga and they don't know things like this. But yoga teachers, before starting a yoga session in the more advanced levels of yoga here in Agama, they start the yoga sessions by consecrating the yoga session. Like before we start doing the worming exercises, we actually first of all consecrate this yoga. So then this yoga session is like a prayer. It's like an offering. It's like a sacrifice. It's like a gift to God. It's like an act of love. We simply, that's our little, unworthy as it may be, that's our little way of offering something. I am a yogi living in the jungle. I can't rub two pennies together because I am an ascetic living in the forest. What can I give to God? My yoga practice, my love, my surrender my spirituality, I can pour my spirit in the fire of love and thus offer. Thus, here Krishna is clear, people do yagya by means of material possessions, by austerity or tapas, by the practice of yoga itself. Even yoga is a sacrifice, 
if you do it in that way. While other aspirants of rigid vows, here he speaks about people of very tough austerities, like monks and other people of monastic vows, they offer as yagya their study of scriptures, spiritual learning and knowledge. That's also very difficult to understand. You offer as sacrifice the scriptural learning, the study of scriptures. But that's also a practice of spirituality, which you learn in the very first level of yoga here in Agama. <clears throat> that is Svadhyaya. Svadhyaya, the self-study, the spiritual study. There are people who study for the sake of study. But there are people who study for the sake of God, for the sake of enlightenment. Because, as Buddha said, suffering is caused by ignorance. <clears throat> so what is the solution to suffering? To destroy ignorance. How do you destroy ignorance? By knowledge. The most primitive form of knowledge is just the street knowledge. The scriptural knowledge. The book type of knowledge. But then that's very primitive, but still it does something good. A text from India, a tantric text from India says, above, who those, above those who don't know are those who know because they read, for example. Like somebody who read something and knows is definitely above somebody who doesn't know. But at least you have the first step. Of course, that just reading a book and learning about the laws of karma doesn't mean that you are applying what you read in those books. But the fact that you read puts you one centimeter higher than those who didn't even read and who don't have a clue about the existence of the laws of karma and their consequences. Thus, knowledge starts with the most primitive knowledge, like somebody talks to you, you come to a lecture or to a discourse, you read something, but then beyond that, there is the knowledge that you go home and you think about it. You process, about, you process that knowledge. You understand it. You make it yours. You assimilate it. Then you are transformed a little bit more by that knowledge. And then the next level is that if I understood something, then I start applying it. It's not just a sterile knowledge. It's my life. It's what I do, it's how I think, it's how I behave. And thus, I start applying knowledge practically. So it's even deeper, it becomes existential. And when I apply knowledge, I can apply knowledge for three months and I don't seem to get much. And then I get discouraged and I quit. And I stop doing something before I actually got results. And therefore, above those who apply are those who get results. Because some people are too impatient and they stop before they actually get results. They are tempted to do something and they hope they are going to get enlightened in three days or in three weeks. And then if they don't, they stop practicing. And thus they practice, but more than them are the people who practice patiently and for long enough so that they can get results. <coughs> and even those who get results 
are surpassed by those who reach enlightenment. Thus, there are degrees of knowledge. That's why some people practice study of scriptures or, or other scriptural learning as a sacrifice. Like you would rather play a computer game. You would rather watch a movie. You would rather go to a club and have fun. And you take the Bhagavad Gita and you say, Oh, I got very inspired by the lectures of Swami and I would like to read Bhagavad Gita by myself. That's a sacrifice. You can consecrate it and say, Now, instead of me frolicking and fooling around, going to a club and meeting all sorts of boring people and maybe even getting drunk in the process and others, I'm going to read the words of Krishna. Of course, for your Svadhisthana, that's a sacrifice because your Svadhisthana says, Ah, let's fool around. Let's just do something foolish. No? But you are offering it as a sacrifice and you say, No. I'm going to enrich my spirit. Thus, enriching your spirit by scripture, by learning, not reading just books. It is scriptural learning, is study of scriptures, is self-knowledge, it is svadhyaya. It's not just reading any book. It's reading something which builds character, which builds soul, which builds spirituality. Then that something is a sacrifice. For example, Sri Aurobindo, who was one of the most intellectually oriented yogis of India in the 20th century, <coughs> unlike, for example, Sri Ramakrishna, who was totally unintellectually oriented. So some yogis are very intellectual, some yogis are very unintellectual, because the bull fights with its horns and the eagle with its talons. Everybody is created different and they find their own way to the higher consciousness. Sri Aurobindo, who was educated in Cambridge and who was, uh, you know, really highly educated, he got the greatest honors in education. Sri Aurobindo simply says in his teaching, in his letters on yoga, that studying, sometimes spiritual study, scriptural study, can be equivalent to hours of yoga. Those of you who are more advanced in yoga, you understand that you work on the Vigyana Maya Kosha. You work on the mental body. If you attune your mental body with a mental body of Svatmarama, the author of Hatha Yoga Pradipika, or with, Bhagav with Krishna, the author in Bhagavad Gita, or with Jesus, the author of many of the words and deeds in the four Gospels from the Bible, then of course you are having a spiritual experience. Going 30 minutes in spiritual reading creates 30 minutes of spiritual resonance. And it is like a meditation. And that's why even scriptural study can be used as a sacrifice. Because even that, there may be people among you who already have some spiritual experience. If you have been in yoga for 15 days, then you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But if you have been in yoga for two years, or in some other spirituality, systematic, practical spirituality, for a couple of years, then you know what I'm talking about. Because sometimes you want to pick up a spiritual text and study it, and your mind goes sinful. 
You know, like it goes into, into vice, not into virtue. And it says, ah, no, not tonight. Tomorrow, no, let's do. And you end by doing something non-spiritual, sometimes something immoral, something, something which is vice-ridden. And the choice is clear. The angels or the demons, what am I going to do tonight, you know? Because even putting your mind in a spiritual thing, your mind will come after one year or two years and say, oh no, it's boring, I don't feel inspired, I don't feel like I want to do that. Why would it be boring? Spirituality is never boring for one like Milarepa. That is why, remember that even scriptural study putting your mind to work in spiritual things and acquiring spiritual knowledge, acquiring knowledge which keeps you away from ignorance and thus from suffering, from pain, is actually a sacrifice. It can be offered as a sacrifice. There have been monks and other spiritual people who didn't know other things to do. They did not have yoga practices. You, if you want to do a spiritual practice, you do laya yoga. You do your headstand. You do your pranayama. You do other and other things which you have learned. There have been people among like the fathers of the desert. All they could do, one of their main disciplines was that they took the Psalms of David, the book of the Psalms from the Bible, that chapter from the Old Testament which is called the Psalms, and they took the Psalms and they read them every day or several times per day. This was like a tapas. My tapas is that they should not go a day without reading. And of course, after you read the Psalms of David for six months, if you are having a materialistic mind, you go bonkers, you go bananas. They become the most boring ordeal that you have to do to read the Psalms for the next 50 years till the day of your death every day. It's like, but spiritual people realize that this is a prayer. This is a sacrifice. You give some, and if you don't know how to give, at least read the Psalms, for God's sake. Maybe you are not good in opening your third eye. Maybe you cannot concentrate and do Laya Yoga. Maybe you don't have the industriousness to do some asanas. At least read the Psalms of David. Read the Bhagavad Gita. Read some, you know, there are Upanishads which say if you read this Upanishad every day, still it's going to give you a spiritual effect. Thus, remember that yes, even the study of scriptures, the spiritual study, the self-study and the knowledge are forms of sacrifice. There are people who become dull. It is one of the manifestations of the death of the soul, of the alienation of Jivatman. It is one of the manifestations of lack of energy and freshness. It is one of the manifestations of low ojas for some people that they become intellectually indifferent and dull. You want to tell them something, teach them something, and they say, no, I know enough. No, I've heard things. And like, wouldn't you be interested to learn a new method to at least, at least to put it down? At least learn it and then simply say, no, no, what I do is a hundred times better than this. Like, thank you for teaching it to me. 
but I know something better, faster, stronger, but still to have the openness to acquire the knowledge. Some people, and you will see many people, especially among the older people, they don't even want to get knowledge. They are blocked. It's like they are sufficient. No, no, I've got enough for this life. And then you are dead while alive. Gurdjieff said there are people who become spiritually dead while they are still living in a body. They are like zombies. Their spirit is already obliterated, dead. They live mechanically a biological life in which only the instincts keep them alive. But the spirituality, the spirit has disappeared already. It has gone out of them. And thus, knowledge is an amazing sacrifice. Like you can practice knowledge. Those of you who did the Art of Dying workshop here in Agama, you know that the research, you remember that the research of Raymond Moody reveals that people who are asked by that angel when you pass away, that angel was valuing just two types of things in life when they read, when they made a survey of the life. And one of them was every action where you enriched your spirit. Like, I'm not too old to learn permaculture or tai chi or something. I can learn things, especially when they are spiritual things, which enrich the human being and create a greater good. It's never too late to learn. Even when you are a hundred years old, you can still keep a young spirit and learn. That is a sacrifice of knowledge. Realize it's not easy. For some people, they would prefer to be left alone. Ah, no, 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 leave me alone. Those people cannot, it's a sacrifice to acquire knowledge. Because you have to keep your mind open. And the tendency is to get tired, plafonated, limited, and not to wish to acquire knowledge. Therefore, even knowledge is a sacrifice because knowledge elevates the human being. Knowledge burns away karma. Knowledge is making the human being eliminate pain, suffering. And here you had just in one shloka, five different other ways of making sacrifice. Not by throwing butter into the Vedic fire or sesame seeds. Sacrifice by so many ways. And this is just part of a long list. Because in 29, he still continues. His list is far from over. There are this shloka and another one which still continue with examples of sacrifice. And some of them are getting really esoteric, as you will see. Others, again, who are devoted to breathing exercises, these are yogis already, right? Because the normal person who doesn't know about yoga cannot be devoted to breathing exercises. Devoted to breathing exercises automatically points at yogis. So he says, others, again, who are devoted to breathing exercises... Pour the inward into the outward breath and the outward into the inward, having restrained the course of inhalation and exhalation. Like you don't inhale, what does it happen when you don't inhale? You hold your breath. 
or restraining the course of exhalation. What does it happen when you don't exhale? When you refrain from exhaling? You are holding your breath. In one of these situations you are holding your breath in. And in the other situation you are holding your breath out. Which are both of them two typical phases of the yogic pranayama. So low that although you are doing pranayama, you didn't know that Krishna said you can do pranayama like yagya. Your pranayama can be a sacrifice. You can do pranayama by just accumulating prana in your chakras, or you can do pranayama for God. Then it becomes a sacrifice. The breathing process itself is a sacrifice. Try to think. It is exactly like the vaporization of water. Water vaporizes, it goes into the clouds, it pours down as rain and it becomes water in the lakes and rivers again through the underworld, through the underground water. It's the same with the breath. Breath comes in and breath goes out. It's the same cycle. It's just a circle. The breathing is a circle process. And the two are meeting when you finish inhaling and when you finish exhaling. And thus pranayama, if you have a little bit of creativity like the yogis did, pranayama becomes a sacrifice. But wait a second, it's not only the yogis. They use the breathing process as a spiritual process in vipassana, in the anapanasati process, where you are using the breath. Why does the breath produce awareness and spirituality? Because actually the breathing can be used as an act of spiritualization. This is a totally new dimension to pranayama. And Krishna is revealing this. You can do pranayama and the result will be the arousing of your crown chakra. Because all you get from that pranayama is more and more awareness, more and more spirituality, more and more sublimation. Your pranayama is an offering to God. And to read it again in a different translation. Others offer a sacrifice, the outgoing breath in the incoming, and the incoming in the outgoing. The restraining the courses of the outgoing and the incoming breath by retention, therefore, solely absorbed into restraint of the breath, or as he said, in the beginning, who are devoted to breathing exercises. Therefore, to sacrifice the outgoing breath in the incoming. Let's use some simple semantics. We are sacrificing butter into the fire. Now let's change the sentence. We are sacrificing the outgoing breath into the incoming. The incoming breath is like a fire and I'm throwing into it the outgoing breath. So my breath goes out, 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 and it's like I'm pouring it symbolically into a fire. What's that fire? That fire is the incoming breath, which will take like the energy of the outcoming breath, turn it around, and pouring it in. But then, whoa, I have the possibility to do it the other way around. I can sacrifice the incoming breath into the outcoming. It's like some yogis say, it's like imagine that you have a fire pit in your heart, like a Vedic fire pit, 
and you sacrifice the incoming breath into the outcoming breath. And therefore, this is exactly like water rains down so that it can vaporize later on and become clouds and vapor again. It's the same principle. Suddenly, inhaling and exhaling have got a meaning. I'm doing them with a certain purpose. I'm inhaling so that I can exhale. I exhale so that I can inhale. This is just closing the circle because my breath reflects the breath of the universe, the breath of God. I am the microcosmic expression of the macrocosmic process of the divine breath. And therefore, understand that even the breathing, then where is the sublimation? The sublimation is exactly when you hold the breath. He says here, having restrained the course of inhalation and exhalation. So when you hold your breath, I inhale and hold my breath for 10 seconds, whatever. 50, 100, how depends how good I am and what's happening during those 10 seconds. The incoming breath is like butter which has been poured into the fire and now I'm offering it. Something happens in my lungs, in my heart chakra and I am preparing this. It's a sacrifice and then I'm exhaling and then it's another sacrifice again. In every, when you hold your breath in, when you hold your breath out, you are actually making, or it is possible for the human being to make a sacrifice. Next time, those of you who are accustomed and practice pranayama, you can try to practice 10 minutes or 30 minutes of pranayama, not for just pumping prana in some chakra or in some part of the body, but performing pranayama as a non-stop sacrifice. This idea has been developed by the yogis enormously. That's one of the basic tenets in Kriya Yoga. In Kriya Yoga, you breathe in and out, and this is a sacrifice in itself. It's like the rotation of the sun through the 12 signs of the zodiac, and the list the continues. Every time when you inhale, your inner breath says hum, and when you exhale, your inner breath says sa, and thus you constantly, 21,600 times per day, say hum, sa, hum, sa, hum, sa, and this is the ajapa mantra, which goes on forever. So actually, you are doing japa yoga. This is a sacrifice. You are praying to God non-stop, through by just by merely breathing. So why does the human being not get more from it? Because they are not aware. It's a process which happens unconsciously and mechanically. And Vipassana, Kriya Yoga, the teachings of Krishna, the Agama Yoga type of Pranayama and others, they are teaching you exactly that. That Pranayama and breathing is like a constant fire sacrifice. You have a fire burning in you constantly and your breath is a circle and constantly you are offering. You are offering the Ajapa Mantra, the inner mantra. You are offering it 21,000 times per day, as I said. That's a number which they equated by 
calculating that you breathe once every four seconds and thus you breathe approximately 15 times per minute and when you multiply with the minutes in a day it gets somewhere to 21,600 times in a full day either awake or sleeping your ajapa japa continues all the time and that that's where the yogis got this from Bhagavad Gita <coughs> it is the Krishna <coughs> who quotes older yogis who are already doing this and Krishna is describing the very process of pranayama as a sacrifice as a prayer as a meditation <coughs> and I hope you understood the meaning of it because it sounds very like do you inhale just to exhale yes because if you don't inhale exhaling will become impossible and if you interrupt the inhale you interrupt the exhale and then you die life is not possible consciousness is not possible if we don't have svara the breath of god the breath of mother nature the breath of the universal consciousness which is reflected in me as my little breath as my simple function of breathing the vital forces of course everybody in tantric yoga knows that this involves prana apana the different values and it's a matter of energy it is not just a matter that you are breathing and you are breathing oxygen and it's the mechanical process of breathing so here you have an extraordinary inspiration which can upgrade your spiritual or your practice of pranayama making your practice of pranayama totally spiritual like you say i want to do pranayama but i don't have any problem really neither health problems nor with my chakras like my chakras seem to be reasonably balanced okay okay they could always be stronger but i don't seem to have any special disaster in any of my chakras therefore if i do pranayama why do i do pranayama i do pranayama as a constant prayer my inhaling my full retention my exhaling my m my void retention they are just a constant sacrifice in which i'm sacrificing the incoming breath in the outgoing breath and the outgoing breath in the incoming breath and when i focus like this suddenly my pranayama becomes something else it becomes sacrifice i do sacrifice and thus i can half an hour every day do and i don't need a ritual and i don't need a priest and i don't need this is my mass this is the way i celebrate my inner mass remember that people obtain divine communion not only by ritual methods the ritual methods are for the outsiders for the householders for the people who cannot see and feel and control energies and thus they need to be helped by symbolic props in christianity it is in the traditional practice in christianity it is an imperious necessity that a human being should take communion for the practice in christian it is the communion which is the core of christianity because when you eat the flesh and drink the blood of jesus as manifested in the bread and wine you are communing with jesus who is god and therefore communion is your way of divinizing yourself the more of that bread and wine you take every day every week every month whenever you do it the more divinized you become and thus 
communion, but they have been, it's very important, but they have been ascetics who lived in the desert for 40 years. They never met any priest, they never entered any church. They didn't get communion for 40 years. Then how were they so holy? How did they get so divinized if they didn't actually go in the church and fulfill the ritual? And the Christian mystics explain it very clearly. They say there are people who commune with God through prayer. You don't need to drink wine and bread in the church. That's okay, a help. And nobody says you should reject it as well. But there is a way for people who don't have access to those external props. There is a way of doing it through prayer. If you pray, you got your communion directly. You don't need to have it through bread and wine. Thus, spirituality, esoteric spirituality, is not relying on religions and beliefs and rituals and priesthood. There is a form of spirituality which is religious. And some people can tolerate it and like it. And they are okay with it. But there are people who hate the religious forms of spirituality or at least they mistrust it because they think it's some manipulation. It's not. Originally, people who created religions, they started as esoteric practitioners and then they wanted to give something to Tom, Dick and Harry, to people who were never going to do meditation or spiritual practice, but they should also get something. They should also get a link. Don't forget that the world religion comes from the Latin syllables or words, religo. Religo means to reconnect, like the human being is estranged from God, and with religion you can come back home, you can reconnect with God. So religion is a method to reconnect people who don't do spiritual practice by some external symbolic acts. Like they also need some reconnection. Maybe they don't have the willpower. Maybe somebody says, I wish I could meditate with you guys and do yoga, but I have got ten children and I have to put bread on the table for them. And therefore I have to work, I have obligations, I, have, I don't have the time to do prayer, meditation, hatha yoga or whatever spiritual people do. Then for such a people there is religion. You can go at least on Sunday at church and eat the bread and the wine and thus commune with God a little bit. Of course, Saint Mary of Egypt, who lived 30 years in the desert, communes much more and many hours every day and doesn't need any bread and any wine because her communion is by a direct telepathic identification with the cosmic consciousness. But... Never underestimate the role of religion because great spiritual beings have sanctioned religion. It's not just a manipulation and an institution. It was sanctioned by great spiritual beings in their good time as a method to cater to the spiritual needs of people who cannot be in the highest league and become actual spiritual practitioners. For such people, there has to be given a surrogate, a sort of watered-down alternative so that they can also do something. So, here with the breath, the yogis have the 
method of doing sacrifice in a total non-ritual, non-religious way. What can be more simple than the breathing process into awareness and offering this as your soul offering? And you do it with mantras, or you do it with prayer, or you do it with awareness, like in Vipassana, and so many other ways are there. And the last of the presentations of Krishna in this list, in this long list of inspiration, he says, yet others restricting their food, so it's about fasting or semi-fasting or dieting by some diet regulation, yet others restricting their food, they offer breaths into breaths. It would seem that he is repeating it because he says others offer breaths into breaths, but just the previous one said you can offer the incoming breath in the outcoming breath and the outcoming breath in the incoming breath. Why does he repeat it? And now he adds dieting put to it. Actually here he does not speak about the breath as the breathing process. The word which is used here is prana. They offer the pranas into the pranas. And this is a very yogic concept. And those of you who have done our second level of yoga in Agama know surely what I'm talking. Because the pranas is just another name for the values, for the five or ten values, depending how you compute them. And therefore, here the, the, the word breaths in English is actually a, an incomplete translation of the word the subtle breaths. The correct translation would be others restricting their food. They offer the subtle breaths into the subtle breaths. They offer the vayus into the vayus, the pranas into the pranas. That's already alluding to even more subtle practices. But here he mentions that they do this by restricting their food. So these are higher practices of pranayama, of controlling the pranas, but they are not based so much on the breathing process, they are internal processes. It is impossible in a discourse for all the levels of yoga being brought together to explain this. These are things which we teach in the advanced teachings of Agama, but technical explanations are not completely possible because there is a huge amount of information which needs to be clarified first. The breaths, the pranas, they have a natural cycle. They correspond to the five elements. And the five elements flow into each other according to some rules which are called svara, svara yoga. And thus every breath flows into the next breath. Akasha turns into vayu, vayu turns into tejas, and so on. And these are the rules of svara. And knowing these things... And by practicing certain dietary restrictions for increasing the sensitivity to the pranas, some yogis are also practicing techniques about the inner pranas. Every two hours, 
the, the dominant meridian in Chinese acupuncture changes. The energy runs through one meridian between 3, to 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. Between 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. it moves into the next meridian. And these are the famous Chinese hours, the hour of the tiger, the hour of the snake, the hour of the dragon, and so on. And thus you can understand... Uh, a little bit of the fact that there is a advanced knowledge which is illustrated in Chinese Taoism and Chinese medicine, which is illustrated in the Kala Chakra teachings of Tibet, which is illustrated into the Svara Yoga teachings of India about uh, the life breath and the circulation of energy and how do you actually continue the cycle. Like you have to continue the cycle of the five elements. You have to continue the cycle of the twelve meridians. You have to continue the cycle of Svara in the human being. And those things are highly technical things. They refer to more advanced techniques of yoga than could be described in the level of a discourse like this. And he concludes here in the strophe number 30 by saying... All these indeed are knowers of Yagya, and through Yagya their sins are cast away. Let's replace the word Yagya with sacrifice, because Yagya literally means the fire sacrifice. But Krishna gave so many examples, he shows obviously it's not about any fire. That's just one of the external ritual things. He says, all these are knowers of sacrifice, whose sins are are all destroyed by sacrifice. Westerners and modern people hate the word sin because the word sin is like a word to control you by the religious authorities and others. And all the anarchistic young people especially, they hate that anybody should point and say that's a sin. Actually, don't think about it as sin. That's a traditional translation of the of the word of the concept, basically what is meant here is the negative karma. Either you like the word sin or not, the concept of negative karma remains, and that's not judgmental or moral, like, oh, you have committed a sin. But if you have tortured and killed an animal, then you have acquired negative karma. Either you consider that killing an animal is a sin or not, that's just a moral and ethical judgment according to your personal values. And people are juggling with moral values so that they should feel good. But even if you ignore morally and ethically that, oh, killing an animal is not a sin, not for me, not for my religion, not for the country where I come from, nevertheless, by killing an animal, you do create negative karma that is without any doubt. That's why the meaning of this sentence here is that these people are the knowers of sacrifice and through this sacrifice their bad karma is destroyed. Sacrifice is therefore a way to destroy karma. Remember it was embedded here just two strophes ago where Krishna mentions among others knowledge. But what does knowledge do? According to Buddha, knowledge destroys 
suffering. But how can you destroy suffering if you still have negative karma? You can't. Therefore, if you destroy suffering, it means you destroy the negative karma. If you destroy the negative karma, it means that actually knowledge destroys the karma. This is a very important connection for the yogis who have understood that by the activation of the chakra of knowledge, the Agya chakra, the third eye, one can influence the chakra, I'm sorry, the karma, by destroying thus negative karma and suffering. Remember, if any one of you or all of you tonight here in this room, if you would have an excellent purified activated Ajna chakra, then there would be no suffering. Suffering is produced by ignorance, which is nothing else but the lack of knowledge. Thus, the equation is pretty straightforward. And thus, by sacrifice, such as knowledge was just a particular example, but all the things are similar, there is an analogy. Either you do sacrifice by knowledge, by scriptural study, by tapas, by giving donations, by practicing pranayama in a spiritual way, the final effect is the destruction of ignorance by the acquiring of knowledge and thus the destroying of negative karma and the advancement of the human being towards full emancipation, towards full enlightenment. Thus, the concept is very important. Read again and again these paragraphs, these shlokas from the Bhagavad Gita, and you are going to have inspiration for sacrifice. Others have done it in other ways as well, but these are at least 20 examples of sacrifice to God, not magic sacrifice, not witchcraft, not black magic, not shamanism, nor sorcery, nor, nor animism, just sacrifice in the highest meaning of that word, as consecration of the lowest into the highest of spiritual action. Thus, Krishna says, all those people, either doing the offering of the breaths into the breaths and others, all these are knowers of sacrifice, like they are connoisseurs, and with this, their ignorance, their suffering, their bad karma is cast away. This is therefore very important. You cannot do spirituality. You cannot terminate your karma. You cannot keep the flow going without doing sacrifice. In spirituality, either you serve in front of an altar like a priest or like a brahmin, or you do pranayama, or vipassana, or kriya yoga, or whatever you do, you sacrifice. There is a non-stop need for sacrifice. Spiritual people try to sacrifice as much as possible, and they try to turn their whole life into a sacrifice. I know that when you put it in English language, that spiritual people want to turn their life into a sacrifice, it sounds very dramatic. Like the human being has a tragic 
destiny. The human being is like a sacrificial lamb. Oh, like Jesus who took upon himself the sins of the world and was innocent and sacrificed like a lamb for the sins of the world and all that. Some people do that, but you don't need to go into that dramatic, tragic, painful interpretation. If somebody feels that that's their dharma, that that's what God requires of them, that that's why they are born on the face of this earth, of course, they may choose to sacrifice themselves even in that way. But the word sacrifice does not necessarily mean something painful or self-destructive or self-consuming. Sacrifice means a lot of other things because sacrifice simply means subliming, giving, subliming all the way to Sahasrara in the fire of the sublimation offering subliming, making love the tantric way, and instead of just exploding the sexual energy, just offering it to God by sublimation, that's a sacrifice. And it doesn't need to be painful, it doesn't need to be frustrating, it doesn't need to be tragic, it can be very pleasant, actually, and therefore sacrifice, we have the feeling that sacrifice is sacrifice, is sacrifice, which means sacrifice means automatically something painful. That's why the word sacrifice does not correctly and 100% illustrate what Krishna wants to say by yagya. Because sacrifice is something which can be also done smiling, rejoicing, dancing, orgasming. You can, sacrifice is not necessarily a painful thing. The human beings who are spiritual rejoice in sacrificing and praying to God because meeting with the divine is a joy. Some people say, oh, today I have to sit and do my meditation. I have to do my Udhyana Banda. I have to do my prayer. And it's like a chore. It's like an ordeal. It's tapas. But some people say, I can't wait for 9 o'clock to come. And then at 9 o'clock, I'm going to do my Laya Yoga meditation. And every time I do my Laya Yoga meditation, it's mildly ecstatic for me. I feel so much bliss. And I know that I'm going to go deeper and deeper. And it's going to get better. And then it's not a chore. It's not an ordeal. It's actually my long-awaited moment in the daytime when I meet with my Maker, when I commune with the bliss of the universe. That's why, remember, sacri the word sacrifice is very much tainted by the Christian understanding of it, in which sacrifice is something painful. And people say, oh, you know, don't know how much I sacrificed for you. And it means I took food out of my mouth and saved it for you. It's always painful, frustrating, and so on. That's a very skewed and partial understanding of sacrifice. Sacrifice can very well be understood as blissful, pleasant. And in the last shloka which we approach tonight, Krishna concludes by saying, eating the remnants of the yagya, which is nectar, they reach the eternal Brahman. This world, O oh best of Kurus, which is Arjuna, it's an epithet of Arjuna. His family is the Kuru family, and he is the best of the Kurus. 
So he said, we can say Arjuna. This world, O Arjuna, is not for him who offers no yagya, much less the world hereafter. Here, this once more in the translation of Shivananda, who says, those who eat the remnants of the sacrifice, which are like nectar, go to the eternal Brahman. This world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice. How then can they have the other? Like, let's start with the final thing. Many people say, I don't have anything in this world and I'm going to have a lot in the other world. Krishna disagrees with this and I personally have the same understanding as Krishna has. There are people who cannot rub two pennies together. They cannot raise children. They cannot make a successful business. In the language of the world, those people are losers. And those people hope they are going to reach nirvana. Like my question is, if you can't do what even Tom, Dick and Harry can do, how are you going to find in you the power to do something which is way above the average condition? Something which is exceptional, something which is reserved to the elite of this planet, to the really the most developed and the most spiritual and committed people in this world. It's abnormal to think that somebody cannot make business, cannot hold a speech, cannot dress nicely, cannot do this and cannot do that, but they can meditate and they can become exceptional spiritual people. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair that a person who is an incapable person suddenly may seem to be... My opinion is that even the people who apparently ran away from the world and did asceticism by going into hermitages a la Milarepa, they were actually very strong men, very strong women, very strong human beings who, if necessity would have been, they would have been able to do amazing things in their village, in the society, but they simply chose something better simply because they were going for quality. It is, I refuse to believe that a person who is a total loser at the average level can conquer the summit of Samadhi. That doesn't make any sense. And that's why here Krishna is pretty clear. And that's why we always advise. We advise you all, especially when you've gone beyond the first levels of yoga. Do some karma yoga. Be active in some way. I have seen, I've had pupils who wanted just to sit and meditate. And they were not good at anything in this world. And they were not getting results in their meditation. Although they were practicing like crazy. Their prayer, their spiritual practice had something pathological, obsessive, fanatical. It was not healthy spiritually and mentally. They did a lot of practice, but their practice was done neurotically, psychotically, obsessively. It was not reaching there. And then I took such people and I sent them to the registration office. 
And I said, you do four hours of registration in Ananda. And they said, I hate it. I can't talk to people. I hate interacting with people and so on. And I told them, if you don't do karma yoga, you are simply not capable. You are not staying away from the world because you are so good that you did everything which was to be done. And now you discovered something which is even better than the things of the world. And you have renounced some of the things of the world because you have discovered the cherry on top of the cake. Because you discovered the priceless pearl which is on top of everything. You are actually doing this because you are running from the world. You are incapable. You are a fiasco in the world. And you think you are going to get any success by taking refuge in a cell <clears throat> and doing meditation. It's not possible. Demonstrate your worth, first of all, by doing something in the world. Like you can see that people like Shivananda or Aurobindo or Sri Aurobindo that I just mentioned, he took the highest grades. He took, a, as you'd say in American language, a straight A. He was magna cum laude. He was the highest possible graduate in Oxford or in Cambridge, I forgot, in the time of the British Empire. And then, after he took the greatest remarks in everything, Sri Aurobindo, on purpose, dumped the last exam, which was the exam of horse riding for British gentlemen. They had to also horse ride. And Sri Aurobindo took straight A's in everything else, and then he gave them the finger on the horse riding, and he could not graduate. But he was one of the top yoga intellectuals <clears throat> of the 20th century. He demonstrated that he could take a magna cum laude, and then he stayed away from intellectualism. He gave it up only when he demonstrated he could do it perfectly. If he would have given it up before, everybody would have said, yeah, Sri Aurobindo, another loser, another guy who could not complete a university degree or something, and he pretends he is a great wise and gets knowledge from Akasha through meditation. No, Sri Aurobindo said, I can get knowledge from books like you, better than all of you, because I'm magna cum laude. And then I went to something even deeper and higher than that. Then you can trust that Sri Aurobindo is the real thing. He is not a fake. He is not a loser who takes refuge in spirituality. That's why Krishna puts it amazingly well. And it's a tough way because Krishna says... The world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice. Like you can't even have success in the world. How can then have the other world? That people say, oh, I won't have success in this world. I'll have success in the other world. Like, oh, no, you don't. Just give up here. You are going to get something in the kingdom of heaven. Krishna does not believe into that. And I don't believe it either. Because when I look at the history of spirituality... I see that the men and the women who did it, they were men and women who, if you'd put them in the society, in a village, in a city, in a university, in a family, they would have been brilliant, exceptional people as well. They wouldn't have been losers or incapable people. Ah, that they chose to go to something greater, 
sure. Glory to them for that. And that's why Krishna is very down to earth here in this. And he says, this world is not for him who offers no sacrifice, much less the world hereafter. Therefore, try to realize, maybe some of you, when I speak about spirituality, you think that I'm speaking very exclusively and there is something in me which goes there constantly because we are always addressing in spirituality to the greatest ideal. We always look up to Milarepa and to Ramakrishna and to Rumi and to the front runners, to the ones who really set a standard in spirituality. And maybe among you, there are people who don't feel prepared to be like Milarepa in this life. And the very thought that you could be like Ramakrishna or like Rumi scares the hell out of you. And you say, yeah, I came to Agama, but the truth is that I have some problems with my liver and I would like to learn some yoga to make my daily life much more fun and better and higher quality. But I don't know if I'm prepared to be so detached and give up everything and make eight hours of meditation per day and go to nirvana. And it's not really me, you know, maybe I want to have a bit of a family. Maybe I want to, you know, integrate in the society, do some social work. And people like Ramakrishna and like Milarepa, although they do have an immense effect on the society, although they don't try to do social work, but still because they are so shining, people worship them and they do have an effect on the society, but such people are really not involved directly in their little things of life with social things. And therefore, remember what Krishna says then, because what Krishna says is not only for people who want the other world, who want to have success, in the, in the world hereafter, in the other world. He says, this world is not for the man who does not perform sacrifice. Even this world, like many of you, see success by doing something in this world. Many people say, I wish I could make a difference. Like I want to help Orphan children in Calcutta with Mother Teresa. I want to sing music. I want to make a scientific discovery. I want to have a lot of money and to make donations and charities. And like people, I want to build the next Eiffel Tower or something. Everybody wishes to make a difference. And most people are actually devastated by anonymity by the fact that you are inconsequential or you seem to be inconsequential because you will die and nobody in 500 years, nobody will remember. At least we remember Leonardo da Vinci. But there have been so many Tom Dicks and Harrys that nobody remembers who lived in the time of Leonardo da Vinci. And therefore the human mind is always having this wish to make a difference. And of course we don't realize that they are anonymous saints in Christianity, in Buddhism, in Sufism, in Hinduism, who you don't even know their names, and I don't know their names, and yet they have been extremely significant 
for the soul of this planet, for the economy of this world, for the spiritual economy of this world. And that's why for many people, many people would like to do something. At least many people think, that's the hope of everybody, that you can extend your life and reach some sort of biological immortality through your children. When you discover that you couldn't make money, you couldn't get a Nobel Prize, you couldn't build an Eiffel Tower or something, then you say, at least I can make some children and my children are going to take my genes, my DNA further. That's a very thin, it's a very delusive hope in which we basically throw responsibility from us to others. And you ask people, what have you done? And they say, well, I've done two children. That's nice, but that's simply throwing the ball in the court of your children. And it says, maybe you guys can make a difference because I could only make you. So in this way, therefore, realize that for the human being, either you want to reach like Buddha and Milarepa or not, there is always the desire of doing something. And Krishna says, remember this because this is not only for those who are spiritual as such. This is for everybody. If you have a minimal wisdom, you understand this even if you came to this satsang first and last thing which you did in this interaction with Agama Yoga, remember still this. This world is not for those who do not perform sacrifice. You are going to say, what about the powerful people of the world? A Napoleon, whom we remember, he may have been a jerk and a warmonger, but still we remember Napoleon or Genghis Khan or whatever. Or we remember Warren Buffett or, you know, like they are famous people one way or another. According to Krishna, these people, even unconsciously, must have sacrificed. Because if they wouldn't have sacrificed, they wouldn't have conquered a portion of the world. They wouldn't have had success. Krishna says, if you do not sacrifice, you cannot even have success in the world. Therefore, I'm telling this to all those of you who want to have successful children, successful business, successful fame and reputation, successful career... You have to sacrifice. If you do not sacrifice, you will not get a chunk of this world. Because that comes as a reward to sacrifice. Remember, however, that the sacrifice sometimes can be unconscious. People sacrifice in many ways. Like I revealed one of the previous lectures that Gurdjieff said that there are people who die in car crashes and those are a blood sacrifice to the demons of the automobile so that the humanity can use the mechanical creation of automobiles, of cars, but you have to give something. And the humanity gives that unconsciously and involuntarily. 
nobody asks you when you are seven years old. Now you are about to grow up and to become, or when you are 14 years old, now you are about to start becoming an adult with some responsibilities. And look, there is in this world this thing that we use automobiles, but 1% of the people who use automobiles die in car crashes. And that's the price which we humanity pay to some demonic entities for using the automobile intelligence. And this, nobody tells you this and says, do you want to be part of that? Like people do it unwillingly and unconsciously, but they still do it. Thus, unconscious or conscious, there must be a sacrifice. If you do not sacrifice, there is no success. Of course, Krishna says that there are different types of sacrifice. It is too late to continue tonight. I will resume from this shloka number 31, deepening this idea... Because it's very important. Remember, not only those who have the other, who want to have the other world, not only those of you who want to conquer spirituality need sacrifice. Even those of you who are little interested in spirituality, nevertheless, if you want to have success in this world, you still need to do sacrifice. And that is capital. In the atheistic, skeptical, cynical, materialistic society in which we live in Kali Yuga, people are not no longer doing sacrifice willingly, consciously, and of a high quality, pure sattvic. And because of this, many people either don't have success, or if they have success, they have it because they make demonic types of sacrifice, ugly unconscious types of sacrifice and they do it anyway and I will reveal more of these mechanisms which are secret and unknown to the regular consciousness as we'll continue next week with the satsang. It is enough for, ton for tonight because we also started with delay. Let us stay with the eyes closed and let these teachings sink in by going into a state of peace for two, three minutes. And after that, we will stop for tonight and part. A little bit of relaxed meditation with gratitude to Krishna for understanding such knowledge which is relevant both for this world and for the other world.